0: Welcome to the show off the record. I'm Aram Mukumov, the host. Uh, Thanks for tuning in on the show. I'm interviewing well-known CEOs and VCs about how to spend the money you raise effectively and what mistakes to avoid. My guests have been in the trenches and have lots of practical advice and experience to share around company stories, successes and failures. As a founder, you'll hear what you could do better uh, around that whole process. And if you happen to be a VC, you're also in the right spot. You'll get to learn from your peers. And so this is episode number 11, and I'm here uh, with another great founder on the show, Craig Zingerling. Thank you so much for uh, giving us some time and being on our, on our, on our podcast. Um, Craig is a six-time founder. He had four exits to date, and he has helped dozens of companies scale their growth. He is the founder of Growth University and Growth Minded, as well as the chief product officer of uh, Sandbox and was previously the Head of Growth at Upside Travel, the CEO of Votion, Head of Growth at Red Tricycle and VP at New Signature. So Craig's motivation um, currently is to help many other professionals learn the growth strategies and tactics needed to scale their companies and to create a structured and organized way for people to get started with growth, which he practices through Startup Growth University. So once again, Craig, awesome having you on our show. Thank you so much.
1: Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks Aram and everybody else for uh, hosting me today. And I'm really looking forward to our conversation.
0: Cool, cool. I'm excited to have you. Uh, we got some great questions that I, we're gonna be going through, so let's get started. Uh, the first question I have is, you've been a founder, you've gone through the process as a founder and a CEO, you know, a couple of times now, and had some exits. and. know over the last little bit of time you've been working with a lot of other founders around helping them kind of build out their businesses focus on growth and like what how they can like really accelerate their businesses so i want to kind of you know start off by asking you what what makes a great founder and what traits and signs do you look for having this exposure to them um to tell if they're honest or not or what you know what what like immediate things kind of you look for and how can you, um, yeah, help them?
1: Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And yeah, I mean, for context, I have, I've worked with about, um, I mean, in addition to the main jobs and gigs that I've done and advisory work, a little bit of investing, um, really where I've dug in the last few years is around uh, mentorship and now I'm running curriculums and courses, uh, teaching people growth marketing and and product management and really to help develop those skills and those muscles to become really better uh, at their jobs and to effectively build better products and, and higher growth startups with more potential because they're ideally working on the right thing at the right time for the right audience. And one of the things that I think I've seen some of the best founders that I'm coming across uh, have in terms of traits are um, are things like intellectual curiosity mm-hmm. uh, openness um, the ability to take on risk obviously is a is a trademark of founders because you have to at some point take the plunge not necessarily in a quit your job type of way and, and just go all in because it, that I think um, is 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 the fable, right? That everybody likes to, to tell. But the reality is that great founders, I think are constantly learning um, and they're looking at what their peers are doing and they've got a desire to go out and create something from scratch. And maybe they're not content in what they're currently doing. And so they're starting a side hustle, which has become really popular in the last couple of years. And so I think that, you know, what it all stems down to is intellectual curiosity a passion for what you're trying to get into. Um, I don't think the experience really matters all that much at this point. I think in the earliest okay. days, you just need to you need to start something and not be afraid to start something, even if it means you're spending a few hours a week on it. And you have to have that, um, you know, the ability to kind of break out of the mold in terms of whatever you're doing every single day and get into the new thing that you're doing. Um, you know, I think there is this sense of uh, once you start to grow your company, and and maybe it's not just you anymore, and you're starting to hire and recruit people, you have to be good with working with people, right? So you have to be able to tell your story, your personal story. You have to tell the story of the company or the startup that you're starting. Why should people join? Why should people follow you into this risky territory? Why would somebody leave their job to to follow you. And what's interesting, I think, is that there, there definitely can be a fine line between somebody who is a founder and is doing it for a lot of the right reasons and somebody that's a founder who maybe is in it for more of the personal gain side of things. And I think as a, as a future employee or somebody that's working with early stage startups, uh, the, that first crew of people that come in, they're the ones taking on the risk, right? So in terms of honesty and, and things like that, I, I like to go really deep with founders when I, when I onboard uh, either with a company or um, with a, even with a project or a gig to really understand if our motivations align. And I think that um, where you see some startups get into trouble and some founders specifically get into trouble is when they are almost too good at telling the story. And they've almost got too much belief in, their, in themselves and, and what they're able to pull off. And then they, they start building and they get people to follow them along this journey. And then that journey, you know, there's a lot of peril along the way. And, uh, and you really want somebody that you can trust at the end of the day. So, yeah, I think there's a lot there to dig into. But um, I think it really starts with that curiosity and the motivation to do something new. And then to be an honest player. Uh, and to build a a real company based on some values uh, and ethics as well that you can scale on.
0: Can you give um, maybe some examples or or what, how do you kind of uh, call, or how do you look through a founder's kind of bluff? Because like a lot of founders sell a Kool-Aid, right? I mean, sorry, they drink the Kool-Aid, but they also sell the Kool-Aid, right? Um, And that's to internal team members, that's to VCs, investors when they're building up the relationships what what tips or what things would you recommend towards um not souring that uh you know as a person when you're trying to build these genuine relationships with your team or you with your investors
1: yeah that's a great question um and i think this is an area where there's not there's just not a lot of literature right you kind of have to live through it so if i'm on the let's say i'm on the employee side and I'm looking at an opportunity, I really need to trust that whatever situation I'm about to get myself into for the next couple of years is, uh, is one where, where there's effectively, where there's proof that the founder uh, or the core team are trustworthy people. And so how do you suss that out? One of the first things that I'll do when looking at, and, and the same is true if you're investing in a company, or if you're going to spend time advising a company, you're going to work with a company, right? You're you're making a commitment of your time. So it's time away from your family or your main job or reading or whatever else you have going on in your life. And so one of the first things that I'll do is, um, is start to dive deep on the actual model. What is the thing that they're trying to sell me? Why are they building this thing? So starting to ask probing questions around even the nexus of the idea, why did you start this? Where are you at? And go deeper and deeper down that funnel. Um, And so there's been some situations um, and I won't, I won't share names, but um, I had actually gotten a job offer at one point from a company that it was a great offer. Um, However, I made it pretty clear that um, building liquidity and uh, you know, it wasn't just about a paycheck. It was more about the future potential and building liquidity and building a really big business. And so what I was looking at on the equity side was what what is, my, um, what is my take? What is my percent in a, on a fully diluted basis? And the company wouldn't even give me the number of outstanding shares that they had. Um, so I couldn't figure out the equity side with a clear view. And that's a danger zone. Uh, and I actually, I actually turned that, that gig down. Um, and that's not the first time and it wasn't the last time that that happened. So as somebody coming into a situation where you've got a founder pitching you, If you're the employer, you're the co-founder, you have to understand very clearly where you stand, what the equity and cap table look like, what the salary is going to look like, what happens if this thing tanks, and who's the first one that doesn't get paid, right? What happens if the CEO leaves? These are all like really tough questions, and it's hard as an employee to ask these things, but if you're coming in at the founder or co-founder level um, or on the investment side, you have to get to the root of some of those types of questions, and so... You know, I'll put people through the gauntlet effectively and and make a decision in terms of how comfortable do I feel. And secondarily, I think you talk to other people that that know the founder. Um, So if I'm going to hire somebody, I absolutely want um, that potential employee to talk to people that have worked for me, people that it worked out for, people that it didn't work out for, right? Because it's a two-way street. It needs to work for them and it needs to work for me. And so I think just having transparency and open conversations early and as fast as possible it really prevents a lot of pain down the road.
0: Okay, great, Awesome. Um, I want to have the next couple of questions, talk about, you know, your experience um, as a founder, raising money or dealing with VCs. So in one of the conversations you, um, we, we uh, watched or um, listened to previously uh, through growth university, you um, you spoke to one VC about raising and they said, um their advice was that you should only really start raising when you're at about 100k mrr what do you think of that kind of threshold you know is it specific to an industry type of business model b2b b2c or whatever is that like a good threshold to you know aim towards when you're starting to raise external capital
1: mm-hmm. yeah i mean so my initial take on that is 100k if you've grown your company to 100k in monthly recurring revenue, congratulations! I mean, you are one of the very, very few, right? And so, I think, I think the question of raising money is, to me, it's less about, um, it's less about the the actual revenue. It's more about your P and L as a business and your personal. Uh, I mean, it is. It's a personal runway thing, right? If you're going to start a company and you've got money in the bank, you're good. If you're going to go start a company and you have no money to back into when things go wrong, which they often always do, um, you know, especially in the early days, then you're probably going to need capital a lot faster or you're going to need to take the profits of the business. Whatever's coming in the door, you're going to be spending that on payroll and, and other expenses. So I think by the time you get to 100K MRR, I would hope that you've got a large number of options for, for raising capital because you've clearly grown a, a million dollar plus business at that point and you're well on your way to something bigger potentially. So, um, so I, w- I wouldn't wait until 100K. I also don't think that raising money is for everybody. And so what I've found, what's interesting, so I'm running, I'm running Growth University and roughly 50% of the companies that are coming through the program haven't raised money now 75% of the companies that are coming through have either raised money or plan to raise money but what's interesting is that that inflection point is you know i want to raise money but i'm not quite there so what is the stage that i raise money at and this is why people are coming through the program it's to figure out the ways and the mechanisms to, to ideally hopefully grow a little bit faster so i think in general you have to you have to have some kind of traction if you're a new founder or you don't have a network of people that you're going to raise for. So, so rule number one is get traction, right? You don't have to quit your job to get traction. You can, or maybe you quit your job and you get traction. However you do it, you need to do it, but you need traction to raise capital unless you're a serial entrepreneur who has friends and family and other investors that you could pull from. But I also think that you shouldn't raise money too early. So it's this fine line between what are your personal needs? How much money are you going to be pulling out? Who do you need to hire in what order? How much do you have to pay them? How much money are they pulling out of the company? What does that P&L look like on a monthly basis? And you can build your growth model and your fundraising model around that. But just know that you're gonna have to set that raise off of traction and that traction's gonna need month over month growth. And if you're a B2B SaaS company versus a consumer company, those are gonna be pretty different metrics that an investor is gonna look at, right? So on the B2C side, And if you're a social app or something like that, you may not even be tracking revenue yet. And that might be okay to raise money. If you're an enterprise B2B platform, you may have to have 20 or 30 or 50K in in MRR for an investor in that industry to take you seriously. So it's a huge, huge, huge spectrum, but you got to have the traction either way.
0: Yeah, and if you if you have the traction and you have the profitability, then you in many ways can kind of call the shots or figure out how you want to spend that money. So you got that upper hand. Um, yes,
1: and that's a great spot to be actually because if you've got that leverage, then you can opportunistically raise money or you can decide to bootstrap. And there's nothing wrong with bootstrapping, right? Not every business is going to be a $100 million business and that's
0: okay. Yeah, and what would you... Um, what kind of runway uh, some different investors that we spoke to and founders said that they try to plan for about 18 months of runway um uh with the cash that they want to raise for is that is that like a number you've heard as well before yeah
1: yeah i think 18 months is is good um i, I i've seen it go a lot lower frankly yeah. um i've seen a lot of founders raise 6 months 9 months of runway um mm-hmm. I've actually, uh, you know, I've raised too little money in the past and, and that's really hampered growth, um, right? All so right. There's, it's tricky and it's a balance, but I think 18 months is generally pretty good because it gives you time to breathe, right? This stuff all takes longer than you think it's gonna take. And I know we're gonna get into some of this later, like the operational side of running a startup. I mean, yeah. it, it all takes longer, um, but I will say you may not be in a position to raise 18 months worth of runway. Meaning like you, you don't have enough traction to raise that much money. So you may have, you're going to, you know, whatever cards you're going to be dealt, you're going to have to play. And so at that point, then you're looking at, okay, well, maybe I'm growing a little bit more slowly because I'm raising less. My runway is six months or my runway is a year or my runway is 18 months, but I can't actually get all the people that I need. So it's just a big set of trade-offs.
0: You you shared with us an interesting story. I wanted to um, bring it up. Uh, you were um, at a at a dinner party, from what I, I remember, and you were speaking there. Um, you were there with the founder, and the founder, I think, had some investors there as well, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, they had just raised twenty million dollars uh, in funding, but they didn't know what to do with the money, <laughs> right? And they yes. raised all this money, and they're like, "Oh, what do we do?" And so they were, you were discussing it with them. Um, I want to ask. I mean how can founders avoid these type of mistakes? Because like planning your capital allocation needs and the spend is something that should be done in advance, in my opinion, uh, you know, when you're, when you, before you get the money with your investors. So like what, what suggestions, what tips can you provide for uh, these founders to avoid these type of mistakes?
1: Uh, such, a great, such a great question. It's, a, it's kind of a fun story. I'll give you a little more backstory. I actually was speaking at an event and after the event, a VC pulled me aside and said, um, hey, like, I, I really need you to meet somebody. You're going to gonna love talking to this founder. Um, let, let's grab dinner. And so we had this, yeah, th- this was a few years ago. We had this little dinner party and then uh, the VC um, left. And then it was just the founder and I hanging out. And, um, and we got to talking and, and I knew they had raised money, but effectively what it came down to was the founder said, look, I am in a panic mode right now because I just, I successfully raised this huge round of funding and I don't know what to do. And I was kind of flabbergasted. I was like, oh my God, what do you, you know, first of all, how do you get yourself in that situation? Congratulations, it's exciting, but <laughs> I, I could I could empathize, right? Like I could feel the, you know, the, the, the fear of not knowing what to do because all of a sudden now you raise all that money and now you're on the clock. And so, when you raise institutional capital like that, you are not going to be given five years to just dilly-dally and figure things out. You have to grow now. So the first thing, if I recall correctly, the first thing that I I did was just a little bit of founder-to-founder chat. Like, it's you know, things are going to be fine, but you, you're going to need to figure this out. So let's think about in what order you need to grow. And so put together a hiring roadmap around... Who do we need, in what order, and why? Because what a lot of companies will do when they raise capital quickly is they may have one or two marketing people. They're going to hire a bunch of agencies, and they're going to hire a bunch of growth people. They're going to hire a bunch of engineers and product people, and they're just going to start cranking out stuff. The problem with that is that they're they're kind of um, running parallel streams of work, and it gets messy and chaotic, and then. It, it, People start getting burned out, and there's no process, and but too much process is bad, right? So there's all these things that are that are in conflict. So in a nutshell, slow down. Put together a comprehensive hiring roadmap first, so that you understand who you need, why you need them. So for example, in this situation, it, uh, and I don't know the the specific details, but if I had just if somebody just handed me a check for twenty million dollars to grow my startup, I'd probably look at the areas where I'm weakest right now and I would probably plug some holes and then I'm probably going to build a team that can help me scale. So I'm going to look for peers who have done this before, perhaps, and maybe have some of the industry or domain knowledge that I don't have so that I I don't ever become a single source of failure or a single point of failure or a critical path for anything that needs to get done. And if I raise that much money, I'm probably thinking of, of building a small executive team that I really, really trust that, that I could start delegating to so that I can work on all of the rest of the stuff that's going to happen when you raise that much capital, which is investor relations, You know, it's HR and personnel, it's hiring. Those are the things that you're going to work on if you're a CEO who just raised that much money. So you better go and find the people that can do the rest of the work and they need to be really, really, really good. So I think for those folks out there that just raised a huge round, um, ideally they came in with a playbook, but if they didn't, because things are moving so quickly, now's the time to take a breather because it's only going to get more crazy.
0: In, in, some, in some recordings we've done today, um, a prominent VC said that sometimes pausing is accelerating. And um, I, I really loved that uh, that approach and you kind of touched upon it just now uh that sometimes you need to kind of like okay let's take a breather right let's see what we're gonna do um but as a ceo i mean uh with this example that you gave or you know any company that um just got a large amount of funding whether that's a seed round or a series a but how do you efficiently spend that money because you said that you could kind of you said that you could set up a hiring playbook and have like what what kind of people you need to hire. But then also like how do you effectively manage that spend but also see the ROI in terms of like the spend? And if it's a first-time founder or seasoned founder, I mean, obviously they have different um, ways to go about it or, uh, you know, might have more uh, knowledge than the other. But yeah. how can they do this better? Any, any tips there?
1: So that's an area where I, I really think that if you're raising money, you have to have a grip on what your burn rate's going to be. And so this is just, this is a pretty simple concept to work through, but basically you raised a bunch of money. What are the expectations on your company and how quickly do you have to realize those expectations? And, And that's absolutely a conversation that you had with your investors. You pitched them something, they're expecting something. And so where I think a lot of companies get this wrong are companies that are specifically trying to blitz scale, right? So, so they're in a winner-take-all market, and they raised institutional capital, a large amount of institutional capital. And they, they go on just a hiring blitz, but they don't really understand yet what things like their customer acquisition cost at scale is going to be or what the overhead cost is gonna be by adding so many people, or what new friction is gonna be caused in the business. So I think, again, taking that pause, I, I love that somebody else had, had referenced that. I think taking the pause is your opportunity to do this. In terms of efficient spend though, I think probably the area where founders who raised capital uh, go the fastest in terms of spending money is on, on ad spend and on okay. and hiring. So if you can control to the hiring side of things because you, you know, you've taken a pause and you understand what you need, the next thing to look at is what is your customer acquisition cost? And some high growth startups or startups that think they're high growth but are actually just throwing money at the problem and their customer acquisition costs are through the roof and the retention is bad, right? That's a recipe for disaster. So The way I would look at efficient spend is more from a retention-based acquisition strategy than a customer acquisition cost strategy even. At the end of the day, you need to bring on more customers who stick around long enough that you recoup your money and then some. And that ratio should be within roughly six months, right? If you can't get that balance right, then inherently what's going to happen is your burn rate is going to continue to go up. You're going to spend more and more money to get the same number of people. You're flooding channels. Your competitors are in in this space. Everybody's trying to go after the same person. You're moving too quickly from a growth standpoint to make the right decisions, even on what channels to be in and how how to spend money efficiently, even in a channel, right? You're making all those classic mistakes while retention is bad. And that's where companies go downhill quickly. And that's why you see some of these high growth but poor retention based companies continuously raising money to try to to try to game the system. And it very rarely works. So you gotta get control of those costs really quickly. Like your CAC is one metric, and then your payback window, your LTV to spend ratio, that's probably the most critical thing outside of hiring and, and P&L costs that you, need to, that you need to focus on.
0: I love it, um, those are great tips there. Um, why do you think, because we're doing this podcast series to talk about these specific things, I don't know from your perspective, why do you think nobody talks about the operational and admin side of growth after you raise the money?
1: Because it's super boring. <laughs> nobody likes doing it, right? I mean you think of like you think about scaling a startup and you hear all these podcasts and you read the blogs and you you read all these stories and it all looks amazing. Everybody wants to be that founder and that team and have the big exit. The reality is, is that what, what the CEOs of these big companies that got these companies that got big, what they're really good at is, is operational uh, efficiency, right at scale. So they figured out the playbook. They've, They've got the good team in place to run growth. The rest of the work is just in the details. And and this is even true for growth teams, like really good growth teams or really good marketers or really good product managers, right? It's not about building a fancy feature and all the glory that comes with that. It's actually about building the right ad campaign tactics in Facebook and in Google and building the content strategy and then building the onboarding process, but not just the kind of sexy in-product stuff. No, all of the drip campaigns and personalized content that you need to send and all the follow-ups that you need to do and all the chasing down customers, right? All of that stuff is not glamorous. It can be very tedious. And there's a lot of that work. And and actually that makes up a, a bulk of the work, especially if you're, in this high growth stage, where you're hiring people, even to hire one person takes a while. To hire a great person takes a while, right? And so I just think that people don't really, maybe they don't know that that's what's actually going on in a startup. Maybe the founders that are out there have told such great stories about blitz scaling and, and growing their startups that that this stuff hasn't been a focus area. But the reality is, is that yeah, you're day in and day out. Once you raise that money. It's just you're in the weeds and you're doing the work, and and I actually love doing the work. Like there's a lot of people that love doing the work, but it often doesn't get talked about. The administrative side and the operational side will become your competitive advantage in a market where the products are are commoditized.
0: And just to add a question to that, you know, uh, when you need to grow fast and you have these operational administrative things that come up you know a lot of companies don't know how to solve that or you know it's unglamorous, as you said um how can they avoid getting bogged down by these type of things especially if they don't know how to do it or it's the first time approaching this type of problem from like a situational awareness standpoint yeah but what, what can they do is it like hiring the right people is it uh, delegating anything like that
1: well it's a lot of delegation but the other thing that's interesting is it's almost like you hear a lot of startups or you see, um, you see job descriptions of startups and they talk about flat hierarchy, no hierarchy, there's no reporting structure. It's a totally transparent organization. Like I'm into a lot of that stuff, right? Like I love running transparent organizations. I love you know sharing as much as I can share. I love not having a lot of process. But the reality is, is if you wanna grow, And you want to hire people who are going to become mature employees who really contribute a lot of value to, to your company. And they also get a lot of value from the company in return. Guess what? They need learning pathways. They need peers to, to learn from. They need systems and processes to keep them happy and engaged at work. And so I take that whole like mindset of there's no process and, and we do that for a reason, I just call BS on that, right? I don't think that you can really, really grow a great company with a great company culture doing interesting things in the world if you don't focus on figuring out how to delegate, figuring out how to hire, figuring out how to automate some of those boring administrative tasks or finding the right people to do those tasks because those people don't think that those tasks are boring if you do, if you're the CEO and building a lot of trust with your, with your peers and your employees. Um, and so, again, this is another area that's not really glamorous and not a lot of people will talk about it, but I think the companies that tend to get bogged down, it's, it's when the core team feels like they need to do everything. you know, And you're splitting time now among 50 different things in a day. If you're a founder, you don't really want to give up control of the product, but you're going to have to, right? If you're the founder, you don't really want to give up control of the product backlog, but you're going to have to, right? You may want to have a say in everything that's being designed, but you can't. You just can't do those things anymore at a certain level of scale. Generally, when you get to about 25 to 50 people, things really start to change.
0: Yeah, and then when you get to 100, then it's like you have a whole whack of other problems and then it just keeps compounding. That's right. The larger the growth. Um, Got a couple more questions for you, Craig. uh, one is, you know, you've worked with, I'm um, assuming a lot of companies now this year, especially companies that got affected by the pandemic, right? Yeah. And so a lot of companies probably that raised money, they, you know, before they had um, time, five years, 10 years to kind of hit all these audacious goals that they set out with their investors. But if those investors now go to them, and say, hey, shit changed, You know, the, the pandemic affected everything. You gotta hit those targets faster and we wanna see promising results in the next six months. What are some of those things that I as a founder can really start prioritizing to demonstrate those quick wins or hitting those object- objectives yeah. faster, more efficiently at a lower cost? Um, yeah. Yeah, hard it's, question but
1: <laughs> Yeah, this is this gets into a lot of, you know, a lot of the meat of of what I get into in my programs and just when talking to to companies, I think really what you're talking about I think is a concept um that that uh one of my friends Eric Custer calls micro traction um and I just call it kind of either channel focus or channel diversification how you want to look at it, but it basically what this is is if you've got investors and they want to see progress, you have to agree on where the progress where the progress metrics are. And, and then you need to get pretty hyper-focused on proving out those metrics. So for example, some investors, they don't really care as much about revenue because revenue is a lagging indicator of growth. So those investors might want to see really strong top of funnel growth. And they want the customer acquisition costs to be low. We'll just pick an arbitrary number, call it 50 bucks. $50 to acquire a customer. Now, you as a founder, you get the news from the investors that they're starting to get impatient and they want to see traction and they want to see it they want to see growth at this $50 budget per customer. If I'm in that seat, what I'm doing is I'm probably looking at running experiments across different growth channels. Micro experiments. I mean, two to three week, um, quick hit campaigns to try to get a signal. You're trying to get a leading indicator that you know that something lagging will happen because you did something that's a leading indicator. So, getting more customers top of funnel is kind of the classic case. So, drive more people to the site. I get some email signups, and then I get a percentage of them into a free trial. I'm going to look at that across whatever channels I think I'm going to place my chips in and place some bets on. And then I'm going to double down on the stuff that's working. Right. And so what I think comes out of that type of approach is you'll start to find channels and areas where, and it might come from partnerships. It could come from organic content marketing. It may come from SEO. Right. It might come from influencer marketing. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of ways you could do this, but I would look for one primary channel that I think I can really scale on over the next one to two years. Right it's probably going to be either SEO, it's going to be Facebook and Instagram, it's going to be Google, or it's going to be some kind of content marketing, um, you know, more or an outbound sales type campaign. So there's, there's only so many different tactics you can try. But what I'm looking for is a signal through experimentation. And when I, when I find that signal, then I double down on whatever core metric that is. And then I just exploit that channel. And so if I have six months basically to do this thing, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just go really, really wide quickly if I don't have any data and I'm going to run very small experiments to try to get a signal. If I've got some data already, then I'm going I'm to continuously double down on the channels that are working, kill off everything else and stay singularly focused on making sure that I can do more through that channel. Uh, and, and usually what happens is you start to get um, you start to get a signal there and then you could double down and you could spend more and you, you've got, you start to get things under control. But it's really, really tough. When you're under a tight time frame. what happens is you, you either go too wide or you go too deep. You don't have the right data. You don't understand what the right signals are. So I think it's really critical that you understand if a $50 customer acquisition cost is the goal, what is the thing that you need to do to get to that $50 customer acquisition cost? How many leads do you need to get? to get one customer and how much do those leads cost you? And how many visits to your site do you need to get one lead? So it's just a math problem, but you gotta do that work to figure out what those metrics are
0: that lead to that
1: cost. And that would start there.
0: Okay, okay. great, great advice. Thanks, Craig. Um, got two kind of like personal, and then we'll end up with one question I always like asking everybody is, um, so the first one is, tell me something that's true that almost nobody agrees with you on. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so I'll, I'll just stick to the business context. I, I think there is, um, there's so much literature being shared uh, about growth marketing that says you have to stay focused and just do one thing. And I agree with that at a certain point. Um, I think there's a zero to one, what I call a cold start problem. I think when you're a founder and you just started something, let's say if you're listening to this and you've got a side hustle that you just kicked off and you're really excited about, you're going to have to go try like a dozen or 50 things before you're going to get any type of signal at all that becomes that one thing that you're going to grow on. So I would say like, unless you're at a growth stage, you really do have to go wide and you got to try a bunch of things in hustle mode To see what works, don't assume that you're just going to spend a bunch of money on Facebook because Facebook is where everybody hangs out, or on Instagram, and you're going to scale your business. So, it's kind of counter to what a lot of advice. You know, most of the advice out there that says to to stay singularly focused, it's actually really, really good. But I think a lot of very early stage founders misinterpret that, and so they say, okay, well, I'm just going to pick Facebook, and and Facebook's got to work for me. It's like no, that might not be a great channel fit. For the stage that your company's at right now, it might not be viable yet. You might have to go and get fifty customers from somewhere else. You may want, you may have to go to five different places to find them before you get that signal.
0: Okay, cool. This might be a cliche question. <laughs> you have a lot of knowledge. You have a lot of professional experience, and you know, uh, or definitely an overlap, probably on the personal side to your professional side. What would your advice be to a younger version of yourself?
1: Probably to be more patient with myself, you know, I, I mean, I still suffer with this, you know, I have an idea and I want to go work on it and I feel like I have to do everything right now. And I, I get almost the sense of anxiety if I can't work on it um, or something blocks me from working on it or, or it doesn't move as fast as I want it to move. And in general, like, I think that sense of like anxiety or motivation maybe is a good thing. But what I would tell my younger self is just chill out a little bit more. Like these things are gonna take longer than you think. And um, and it's not about every single hour that you put in, right? It's not about necessarily time on the keys or time in front of a computer. It, like the value that you get out of taking some downtime and just thinking, um, Getting away for a vacation, staying away from your computer for a couple days, um, not checking email 50 times a day, right? Um, I would, I would just be a little bit more relaxed on that, um, and just give myself a little bit more time to figure things out because it generally is all okay in the end, right? Like it's, yeah, it it all balances out if you continuously work on the thing that you're passionate about, eventually ideally it starts to get some traction and it doesn't happen overnight.
0: That's very true. And things definitely don't happen overnight. Um, with, uh, my last question, uh, Craig is, um, we're coming close to the end of the year now of 2020. Um, what, what you provided so much immense kind of knowledge and, uh, insights already on, on this recording, but, um, for the people who are going to be raising money next year, Um, what, and they're like a first time founder trying to get their seed round. Um, what would you just one liner kind of ask them to really think about when they're going to be raising the money and, uh, and spending it wisely.
1: What true metrics do you know will really impact your business and does raising money help you positively impact those metrics?
0: Honestly. That's good, It's good. good, awesome. Awesome, Craig. Um, I think I'm all out of questions. You've answered everything, thank you so much. Uh, amazing having you on our show. Uh, just for everyone who's listening, this was another episode of Off The Record. Uh, just to remind everybody it's a podcast with the goal to build a community of founders and VCs around it so they can make better businesses together. So thanks again and uh, stay tuned for our next episode.